I'm so glad that you're here this morning. Um, just a couple of things, and that is, uh, first of all, uh, last week I told you that the elders are going away on a, uh, an elder uh, prayer retreat. Thank you for your prayer requests. We prayed for those, and uh, we appreciate you sharing those things with us. Um, we also prayed over all of the members, and uh, something that we realized in and through that is that a, a lot of you have, have been very bad, and <laughs> you are not members, and uh, so uh, if you're not a member, would you stand up right now? I'm just kidding. No. Uh, uh, <laughs> uh, that would be so awkward, but really, become a member. Uh, um, so I think one of the things, uh, let, me, let me share from my heart for just a second, and that is that normally... Uh, this time of year, even earlier in the year, we share like this grand vision of what we want to see happen. And uh, there is a sense among the elders that we need to wait on the Lord. Like we, and so I'm not coming to you this morning with some grand vision other than we're going to continue to be Christians. So, I mean, that's good news, right? Um, we're, we're, not, we're not changing our theological position. Um, we do have a lot of things in mind that we believe that the Lord is convicting us of. Um, and one of those things is that we, as an eldership, uh, want to focus on being with God more than doing for God in this season. And instead of coming to you and saying, hey, we have this new program for you to be with God, the, the, and I'm, I'm, by the way, I'm not saying that we have not been with God or that we're not walking with God. As our focus as a church has been on doing. We're called Outward Church. It's an outward-focused uh, endeavor. Um, but what we see is that we want to be focused internally for a moment. We want to focus on being with God. We want to focus on being a part of what He's doing having a relationship with him in order to sustain our doing for God or to even start our doing for God. And with, without, without giving away anything else, that the, the elders and, and I have kind of determined, like we, we just want to hold this close to the vest for just a, a few more minutes, for a little bit more time, and just say, like, Lord, would you make this true in us and allow this to, to seep out into your church uh, we, 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 we just we want to see that happen. We want, we want to see us grow in this uh, first to see this vision develop of being with God um, so that enables our doing for God and see how God changes our church. Our church has been is young. It's probably one, it's probably one of the youngest congregations in Salem. Um, there's, there's a lot of growth that we could all endure. And grow into some of you are new believers some of you are some of you have been new believers for some time and we want to see you grow into Christ uh, some of you have have been Christians for most of your life and the depth that you yourself would admit is just not there if in your quiet moments you'd think to yourself and you'd say I just, I just don't know that I have this relationship with God you know how I know that is because my wife and I have conversations like that sometimes. Not, not that we don't have a relationship with God, but there's a sense in which we've been talking for some time. Like, we want to grow in relationship with God. We want to grow in walking with Him and uh, in some specific ways. And so we're going to be sharing that as we go along here. And you can hold us accountable to that. Back to the membership thing. Membership, um, 
membership isn't just kind of the ending point for you, for you and I to just sit and say, okay, we're in, we're part of the team, and uh, let's just coast on till glory or, or something like that. No, membership is the, the beginning uh, process of what it looks like to be a member of Outward Church who loves Jesus and lives outward and all of what that means. And so what we want to be praying for is we want to be praying for you as the people of Outward Church as you become members, and not that we wouldn't pray for you if you're not a member, but that it helps us specifically focus. Like these are the people that have said, I want to be held mutually accountable. I want there to be mutual accountability between me and you, between the leadership or, or my community group leader or my, uh, my friends, my community at Outward Church. I want to be held mutually accountable uh, to loving Jesus and living outward. And now I'm giving away way more than I was hoping to. And so uh, we'll come back to that. And I, I just want to tell you that that's, that's where we're headed. So we really did have have a, 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 an elder retreat, but we're not going to share a ton about that yet. We want to see this grow uh, from the inside out. We want to see it be real and lasting change in our church and see what God does, not just in us, but in our city as a result. We're going to be in Genesis chapter 9. We're going to pick it up in verse 18. We've been talking about the life of Noah. This will be the last week, uh, really, on the life of Noah and, uh, and so forth. It has, has an interesting ending to it. That I think all of us need to hear. I did a, a, a good amount of study on this, and and uh, many of my commentaries they don't really cover it. It's kind of an awkward story. Um, I think I found uh, one commentary that really covered it in 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 its its fullness. But a lot of my normal commentaries that I would read that just just didn't really talk about it a ton, and that's because it's 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 a little bit of. A, an enigma. You can't really figure out exactly what's going on here, but I think there's something really key in the midst of this. Let me read it for us, and we'll get, we'll get rolling here. Genesis chapter 9, we'll pick it up in verse 18. The sons of Noah, who went forth from the ark, were Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Ham was the father of Canaan. These three were the sons of Noah, and from these people of the whole earth, and, and from these the people of the whole earth were dispersed. Noah began to be a man of the soil, and he planted a vineyard. He drank of the wine and became drunk, and lay uncovered in his tent. And Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father and told his two brothers outside. Then Shem and Japheth took a garment laid it on both of their shoulders, and walked backward and covered the nakedness of their father. Their faces were turned backward, and they did not see their father's nakedness. When Noah awoke from his wine and knew what his youngest son had done to him, he said, Cursed be Canaan, a servant of servants he shall be to his brothers. He also said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem, and let Canaan be, a servant, uh, and let Canaan be his servant. May God enlarge Japheth and let him dwell in the tents of Shem and let Canaan be his servant. After the flood, Noah lived 350 years. All the days of Noah were 950 years and he died. Just a quick fact here that the story of Noah is, is kind of at the ending of a genealogy that, uh, if I remember correctly, starts in, in chapter uh, chapter. Yes, chapter 5. And at the, at the end of chapter 5, it starts talking about Noah. 
and then it kind of breaks off and starts telling you a whole lot about Noah versus what the genealogy said about all of the other people in this list of people. And so from chapter 6 through the end of chapter 9, what you have is a huge story about Noah. And then at the end of that story, it kind of picks back up, <coughs> kind of picks back up, and then it says, and then he died, which is the refrain after each uh, group of people that are in the genealogy in chapter 5. So we've just been in the middle of a genealogy. We have the story of Noah, and then here we go. Uh, this is the ending of the story, and it kind of ends anticlimactically. If you were to look at the passage, or actually if you were to look back at the, the life of Noah, what you would see is several different things. First of all, we would see that Noah was a righteous man. Genesis chapter 6, verse, verse 9. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God. What we see about Noah is that he is a dude who uh, wants to do what's right. He has right relationship between his fellow man and between him and God. He walks in holiness. He's walking with God. God is using him. He's using him on a regular basis. He's walking with him. And then secondly, we see that God tells Noah to build an ark. We see in Genesis chapter 6, verse 22. Uh, God says, build an ark, and then it says in verse 22, Noah did this, he did all that God commanded him. And then what you have is the flood subsides. The flood, the flood comes, and then the flood subsides, and what takes place is, is this. Noah builds an altar, he sacrifices to the Lord, then Genesis chapter 8, verse 21, it says this. And when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma from the sacrifice and the, the altar burning and all of that stuff, when the Lord smells the pleasing aroma from the sacrifice, the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man, for the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Neither will I ever again strike down every living creature as I have done. So God makes a covenant with Noah, and now Noah is on to everyday life. Think about Noah's life for just a second. He goes through this like immense time. Like it, it is, it's astounding. It's absolutely astounding. Like it hadn't rained before. Water had not covered the earth like this before. God comes to him and he speaks to him. You think about what's going on in his life. How many times we say, God, would you just talk with me? Would you speak to me? Would you show me? Would you tell me? And then God calls Noah into this incredible relationship with him where he's speaking to him. And he's not just talking to him like, hey, Noah, how's it going? No, he's saying to Noah, Noah, I want you to do something that sounds so stinking ridiculous. I want you to do something that will absolutely dumbfound the world around you. You're going to be a laughingstock. People are going to make fun of you. It's going to be crazy, and I just want you to follow me. And Noah's like, all right, dude, let's do this. He's like, you know, tell me how to do it. And God's like, okay, this is what I want the ark to look like. This is what I want it, what, this is how I want it to take place. And it takes him years upon years and upon years. I think I'm remembering correctly, 120 years, I think so, to build this ark. Think about this. The years upon years upon years of faithfulness. The faithfulness that, and the, the, the incredible sense of faith that he would have had to have in order to just build the thing to tell people about it and then to be like, okay, let's put these animals in there. 
However that happened, all right, God, you told me to build this thing. So the animals would go, and then here come the animals, and there's, okay, here's another thing. And then like, all right, God, you told us to build this giant door for this ark. And then it says the Lord shut him in. How many moments of faith would have had to happen in this guy's life? How many times would he have had to uh, plead with God? God, would you work in this situation? Would you make this happen? And then you come to the end of Noah's life. And let me summarize the passage for you. We're not going to cover every detail of that. But let me summarize the passage for you. Noah gets on with everyday life. It's back to the grindstone. You know, the storm has passed. The waters have receded. And here he is. And he's just like, oh, what do I want to do now? It's like, it's like he just ended his career. Like he just got out of the military. Or he just got done with missions. Or he just got done with some crazy, intense situation. And he's just at this point where he's like, okay, uh, I guess I better plant some stuff. So it says Noah became a farmer. He becomes a farmer. And pretty soon he's like, you know what? These grapes, they're pretty good. Like, I, I think I'll plant some grapes. So he plants some grapes. And he's like, you know, I'm just going to store them in this barrel for a little while and just, just kind of let them sit there for a little bit and just see how it tastes a little bit later. Well, then we don't know if Noah invented wine, but it says that Noah, he drinks the wine. He drinks the fruits of his labor. He's not wrong for drinking. We could talk about alcohol at some point. I'm not going to go into alcohol today, but he's not wrong for drinking. That's not the issue. What the issue is is this. Is it says, Noah gets drunk. And more than drunk, he gets drunk and naked. Now, that's not in itself an issue, even though it sounds like a, a biblical frat party. But, uh, uh, but he's, he's drunk and naked, and, and it doesn't look good. It doesn't look good. After all of the faith, after all of the stuff, after having to depend on the Lord, now it's all of a sudden all of the resistance is gone. All of the stuff that he's having to trust God for. All the stuff that he's having to look to him for. He gets drunk, naked. It's clearly negative, otherwise it wouldn't have been mentioned. Then Ham, his son. It's an incredible name. But uh, Ham, who is also the father of Canaan. The Canaanites. The arch enemy, in some ways, of the Israelites. Of God's people. Who are the descendants of Shem. Noah's son, by the way. So Canaan is uh, the son of Ham, and he's also the father of the nation of Canaan. That's why it keeps mentioning that. He said, but his, his son, he sees dad buck naked, and somehow there's a lot of speculation on exactly what happened there because it just seems like, wow, that's a, you know, he just was like walking through the door and he's like, oh, sorry, Dad, you know, like, like that's normally what our response would have been. Uh, but, uh, but there's speculation as to what, what Ham did, what, what, what was going on there. But we don't really know. Uh, but the fact of the matter is, is that what a lot of people, conservative authors, believe is that Ham went in there, he saw his dad, and he was like, he went outside and he was like, hey, Shem and Japheth, uh, Dad, he got hammered and he is just, he's just bug naked in the middle of the tent. You got to see this. What you got to see is that that in and of itself is dishonoring. 
in that culture, a, a, a serious shame-honor culture, where to be shamed is horrific. And to shame your father, especially, is absolutely horrific. It, in some respects, deserves death in their culture. So Shem goes out, and what, what they believe took place is that Shem, instead of covering over his dad's nakedness and covering over what had taken place there because it was is incredibly dishonoring in their culture to be seen completely disrobed. But instead of covering that, he goes and makes light of it and he dishonors his father. So Noah wakes up and he realizes what has taken place. Somehow he's told, hey, Ham, totally ripped on you. And, and actually, I, I need, to, need to mention this. Shem and, Je, Je, I'm sorry, Shem and Japheth honor their father by putting a cloak over their shoulders, somehow walking backwards, laying it over dad, walking out. They never saw him. It seems like that was the big issue is that they saw him. So Noah wakes up and he finds out what happens and he, he curses Ham, but he doesn't just curse Ham I get totally confused when I'm talking about ham with meat and things like that, but that's, uh, I wish there was a different way to say this, but he cursed his ham's descendants, Canaan, and we wonder why. Why did he curse Canaan? Why didn't he just curse ham? But the fact of the matter is, is that we don't know the answer to that. It doesn't seem right, except for the fact that possibly it was some type of grace toward ham that he would uh, curse his descendants instead of cursing him. We don't exactly know the situation. So he curses his descendants. He blesses shame and Japheth's descendants. And then Noah dies. He just dies. He talks, essentially what he's doing, there's like this prophecy there, and he's basically setting up the characters. Like, here, you're going to be the Canaanites, you're going to be Israel. Japheth, we don't really know a whole lot about, except the descendants of Japheth become Greece, and, and uh, the Greeks are then led into the church in the New Testament. So that may be when Japheth's descendants dwell in the tents of Shem, if you saw that in the passage. We're not entirely sure. But Noah then, he just dies. He fades into obscurity, as we would say, and it seems that God is not pleased with Noah's actions. How could this happen? How could this take place? How could Noah, after this amazing ascent into this incredible life of faith with God, having heard from him repeatedly, and it says over and over again, and Noah did all that the Lord commanded him, and Noah did all that the Lord commanded him, and Noah did all that the Lord had commanded him. And then he comes out of the ark, and he, the first thing he thinks of is he says, we have got to sacrifice to our God. It's a new beginning. It's a new group of people. All the bad people are supposed to be dead. Here's the good people. We're going to worship God. As soon as we get off this dumb boat, He's worshiping God, he's had faith in God, and then he comes to the end of his life, or middle age, we're not sure, and what happens? He just kind of loses it a little bit. Gets drunk, does something stupid, and he just ends up kind of fading into obscurity. How could this happen? Well, put yourself in, in Noah's shoes for a minute here. 
I don't know if you've ever had an intense time with God. It might have been when you first came to faith in God. It might have been when you, when you first started walking with Jesus. I remember in my early 20s when I really grasped onto this idea that I want to walk with God. And I remember all of the things that I felt like God was speaking to me. I was telling my wife that I, I remember like hanging out with a bunch of buddies. And we, we'd be like in this garage and we were uh, just doing stupid things. But th- at the same time, we'd sit there and we'd, we'd pray and we'd talk with God. And we'd say, God, we want relationship with you and we want to do what's right. And then sometimes I would drive off out, out to like Ankeny Refuge and, and just park there by myself and just talk to God and just say, God, I want to live for you. I want to serve you. Would you, would you help me do that? And then I, I had all these ups and downs and breakups and all of this stuff. And there were these moments where I was like, man, I got to trust God. I got I to gotta walk with him. And, I, and I, it was just this intense time of emotion where I felt like I was talking to God and God was talking to me. And it was amazing. And then there were times when I just felt like I went off a cliff. Man, God, where are you? What's... What's going on? What am I doing right now? Life feels so boring. Was it, what was the beginning of your life in Christ like? Was it intense where you, where you, like became, you became fired up about Jesus and you were, you were passionate about him and you're walking with him and, and like all of these things are going great? Or maybe you've had a difficult situation in your life where you had to trust God. Like, like a difficult situation, like a sickness or a death or, or like you're about to lose your house or like you can't make rent or, or, or something like that. Maybe you're currently going through this, but you, you're going through this, this time where you're experiencing God because you're just saying, God, the only way that I will make it is if you provide. I was talking to someone just recently who, who said, I'm just at this point where I feel like all that I have is God in the midst of the turmoil and the devastation of really bad news on their health. It's just I'm at this point where this is all that I have is God. And so they're at this point of it's actually horrific on one hand, but on the other hand, it's so passionate because they may never experience the type of closeness, the type of desire calling out to God, God, would you provide would you, would you work in this situation? Maybe it's a time when you are serving God wholeheartedly. Like you're serving God. Like uh, I've seen a lot of young people do this where they go on mission trips and they experience God in incredible ways. They're with a bunch of other young people who, uh, who also are uh, kind of in the same stage of life. The emotions are high. We're passionate about God, and we go, and we, we're living for God, and we're, we're serving Him, and we're, we're praying that people will come to, uh, to faith. It's a little bit uh, about, like, the beginning of this church. Like, there were just moments where it was like, is this thing going to blow up and just die, like, tomorrow? Like, I mean, like, we had elder meetings sometimes where it was just like, God, we really think we might not exist very soon. Like, <laughs> we have totally jacked this up. Will you fix it, please? And, like, and it, just passionate prayers. It's just trusting God to do something. And it's so exciting, and it's so amazing. But then God fixes things. And, or God provides the money for rent. Or, or God, like, makes this thing 
successful. Or God does something amazing and we might be just a little bit like Noah where everything's done. We're not driven to faith in God any longer. Now it's everyday life. Now it's nose to the grindstone, got to find a career, need to, need to do this. I think there's a lot of us in this, this situation. There's a lot of us in this time of life. Because many of us are young families. We're starting our careers, and we finally get our career going. And then, you know, when you first start making money, it's like it's great to have a paycheck, but then you're like, oh, these people that live with me need food. And so I like I gotta I gotta actually provide for them or something. And so and so you then we get a couple pay raises, and then finally you make enough to like you can buy a new car, you can buy a house. And then pretty soon life goes on and, and it's and you're so far away from those moments where you trusted God so much. You're so far away from that point in your life that now it's just, life feels like it's on autopilot. And we just go, like, what is going on? Like, where, where is God in the midst of this? What's, what's happening to me right now? I can tell you what's happening. There's a pastor that used to say, guys or men tend to drive straighter with a load. What he said is that guys tend to need responsibility in order to see their life kind of straighten out and to begin to, uh, begin to kind of not be jacking around all the time, doing weird things. But you get a wife, you get a kid, and, and, and <clears throat> you begin working on the way that you live your life. Guys tend to drive straighter with a load. I think what he was trying to say is that resistance on our lives helps us understand what we're doing. When we have resistance fighting against us, when we have some, when the only thing that we have is God, when, when there's no way that we could come up with this, when there's, when there's no way that we could make this happen or build this ark or get out of this flooded situation, like when God is all that you have, man, life is passionate. When you've got resistance, when people are fighting against you, life is passionate. We are passionate about God. But then... We let our guard down. And the thing is this. We think that what matters most is when we're in it. What matters most is how I respond when the difficulties come. And that's true. That's good. But the greatest point of vulnerability is when the storm has passed and the waters have receded and the hard part is seemingly done, and now we just need to live life. But I got to tell you, this is only where we find our most vulnerable moments. We seemingly need God less when in reality we need him even more. And just like Cain being angry with his brother and God speaking to him, he says, sin is crouching at the door. I have to tell you this, that as our church grows, as you begin to walk with Jesus, as you begin to walk with him, sin is crouching at the door. God said that to Cain, saying, hey, Cain, check your heart. You've got to know that sin is crouching at the door. And we don't realize our most vulnerable moments is when the storm is gone. The rent is paid. We are healed. 
And yeah, there are residual effects from those things. You'll never look at your walk with Christ the same way. You'll never have, uh, you'll always look back to those moments and you'll say, that was incredible faith. But God does not want you to stop there. But we will if we don't understand two things, I think. And that is that sin is pervasive. And secondly, that sin is persistent. Sin is per- pervasive, and sin is persistent. What do I mean by pervasive? We can think about this, and we can say, you know, hey, didn't all of the bad people die in that flood? Didn't, didn't God say, okay, Noah's a righteous man, he's a good guy, clearly he's got a good family, and so the only thing that could come of that is just goodness, and so I'm just going to keep Noah, I'm going to kill everybody else, and it'll be fine. But that God is all-knowing, he's all-wise. And what did we say earlier? God, God still knows, even after the flood. God knows that sin is in the heart of every human being. So it wasn't just animals, and it wasn't just people that went into the ark. It was sin. Sin went into the ark. And lest we think because of all of these experiences that Noah had, like he, he could never screw up. Like how could he screw up when he has gone through so much faith and he's gone through so much passion? He had to trust God. Like God spoke to him and God said, hey, Noah, he's a righteous guy. I like him. How could he screw up? It's because sin is in him. Sin is in me. Sin is in you. There's that Smashing Pumpkins song. It talks about the killer in me is the killer in you. And if you read the story behind it, I think ultimately what Billy Corgan, the, the lead singer and author of that song, is saying is he's, he's saying, I hated my parents so much that I wrote a song about hurting them very badly. And I, and I think if I remember correctly, he was talking about how he kind of lost his childhood because he didn't feel like he was loved or something like that. And so here he is, he felt like he got killed as a little boy. And now here he is writing a song about killing. And so he says this, he says, the killer in me is the killer in you. And he recognized something that I'm not even sure that he knew that he recognized. And that is that my propensity to hate to the point that I want to kill is the same propensity that you have to hate and to kill. See, here's the problem. Sin is ubiquitous. It is throughout all of us. It is in us. It is a part of us. All the bad people didn't die. It's not that all the bad people are outside of these walls this morning because they didn't come to Outward Church. The bad people are out there just the same as the bad people are in here. Sin is pervasive. No one is immune to sin. Everyone sins, even Biblical characters. In fact, in fact, Romans chapter 3, verse 10. There is no one righteous. There's not even one. There's nobody in this room that does not have a propensity to sin. There's nobody in here that doesn't have the ability to do so. The second thing is, sin is persistent. The first thing is, it's pervasive. You're not immune to sin. It's a part of all of us. The second thing is it's persistent, and that is that old age or experience with God or incredible moments of faith do not immunize you 
to the effects of sin and the draw of sin on your life. In fact, those moments when you feel so protected because you got the, you got the car and you got the, the good family and you attend church on a regular basis or whatever it is that you're doing, those moments, these moments right here, folks, are our most vulnerable moments. Sin is persistent. There's a, an author who uses this phrase. He says, time in erodes awareness of. And what he's talking about is that the more, what, it, what he was really talking about, he's talking about like paint and decor and couches and things like that in a, in a church building. He was talking about church leadership situations. And he's saying, you know, we're, when we're in our churches and like the thing is getting thrashed, like the building's getting thrashed, and then we invite new people into our church and they see, they're like, dude, they're like, oh, these nicks on the wall, like they're handprints and like, you know, like somebody barfed over here and like no one cleaned it up or something, you know, crazy stuff like that. Like, uh, like he's like, time in erodes awareness of. You're like, oh, yeah, that's the spot that he, you know, puked that day and nobody cleaned it, nobody cleaned the carpet or, or something like that. And he's saying, the more that you see it, the less that you really, you know, pay attention to it. But I think he's really true of our lives in Christ. Like time in Christ, time in uh, the faith, time in these things erodes our awareness of our sin. It erodes our awareness of our sinful tendencies. It erodes our awareness of like, hey, like something could come through that door at any moment. Something could come through that door in my life. Like there's that door in my life. And I know that I'm vulnerable. I think that I'm not vulnerable because I've done so many good things. I am a part of the church. I, I am a part of a community of whatever it is that you are. Or, or I at least attend church occasionally. But time in erodes awareness of. It erodes our awareness of where the areas of vulnerability are. Are you aware of those areas in your life? It's not, just, it's not just us personally. When you look at the scriptures over and over and over again, we're going to talk about the life of Abraham. Almost funny. It is actually hilarious uh, on some level how sinful he is. But uh, there's Moses. There's Abraham. There's Moses. There's King David. You remember King David? Think about King David for a second. If you've ever read the story, maybe you haven't. That's okay. We'll tell you about it. The story of King David is essentially, he's this young boy. And he like, he loves God. And so like, he is a shepherd boy. And he's like out on uh, the prairie or whatever they'd call it over there. And he, he's like taking care of sheep. And you know, he had this battle with this lion and he beat him with a club or something like that. He's really good at this slingshot. And he like writes psalms all the time. Like he sits out on the out on the, the plains and, and in, the, in the meadows as, as the sheep are grazing. And he just writes songs to God. And he's like, he's like really, really good at it. Like he's a really good songwriter. Like he's an amazing worship leader. He's really stinking good. And then you go through David's life where he was like, he, he, was, uh, uh, he goes out to the battlefield. And all of the Israelites are afraid of Goliath. And he's like, I come before you in the name of the Lord, uh, name of the God who rules over all, my kid's Bible says. And I, I get this deep, gravelly voice and, uh, with, with uh, 
you know, uh, what's his name? Goliath. I should, have, should not have forgotten that, but Goliath's like, bring out your best soldier to fight me. And then I do this really high-pitched voice for David. I come before you in the name of the Lord who rules over all. And he's like, you're going to be our slaves. And he's like, no, we're not. We're going to kill you. And, uh, and then he, he does this and then, like, uh, you know, hits Goliath in the forehead. And then, like, the kid's story uh, leaves off the fact that David took a sword and, like, chopped his head off. And so I already have to, I always have to ad lib. And then he takes the sword and he cuts his head off. And the, the kids are like, yeah. Uh, I mean, like, you got to leave those parts in there. Um, some other really great stories, like Ehud, the left-handed judge, who, like, stabs the guy and puts the sword in the guy's stomach, and he loses the sword. He was, he, he, yeah, it's a great story. Anyway, uh, <laughs> so, uh, the boys are, are just, like, enamored with that. The girls are like, ew. Um, David had all of these amazing experiences. He, he, uh, he ends up being made king. He ends up fighting Saul. I mean, like, you could just go down the line of all of the moments, and you see what he's saying to God. You see the fact that he's writing these incredible songs to God, like, God, I've got to have you. You've got to be here. You've saved me from my enemies. And then there's this passage. This guy, who's a man after God's own heart, there's this passage, 2 Samuel chapter 11, verse 1, says, In the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle, David sent Joab, and he also sent his servants with him, and all Israel. Everybody is fighting but David. And they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah. But David remained at Jerusalem. It happened late one afternoon when David arose from his couch and he's walking on the roof of the king's house and he saw from the roof a woman bathing and the woman was very beautiful. And there's, then verse 5 says, and the woman conceived, and she sent and told David, I am pregnant. Ah, can you see that? Like, sin just isn't pervasive. Like, everybody's got sin, but, you know, you go on in life, and you have some experience with God, and as your walk with God grows, and as you experience God, then you're less susceptible to sin, and so then things are fine. But i got to tell you, that doesn't seem to be the case. That doesn't seem to be the case. The case seems to be this, that the, the more I go on in relationship with God, the more vulnerable I am to some really big debacles, like having another man's wife and then killing him so that no one finds out. And then, I mean, the story just goes on and on, and it's sorted. See, here's the thing. Past faithfulness is not a prediction of future obedience. Past faithfulness is not a prediction of future obedience. Just because you've been faithful in the past does not mean that in the future you are going to abide in Christ, that you're going to be walking with Him in obedience on a regular basis. You cannot depend on last year's 
great moment with God. You cannot depend on some moments in your life when it was like just the initial stages like, oh man, I, it was really great. And that's what you've been riding on that for so long. And do you know what happens after a while? We start running on fumes. We start running on fumes. We start running on fumes. And our doing is not sustained by our being. Our doing for God is not sustained by our being with God. Because we get comfortable. See, time in erodes awareness of, but time in also erodes the cares of sin. It's not that I'm not aware, it's just, I just don't care. My, my time in the faith erodes my cares about sin. And we get flippant with sin. I'll let that in. I'll, I'll let this be a part of it. I'll, you know, I'll just be disconnected from God's people and, and, and act like I'm a part of God's people by just attending church occasionally. Never really engaging in community. See, time in erodes your awareness of the sin of disconnection in community. Our time in erodes our awareness of, because we just, it's like the water we swim in. Yeah, I'm, I'm an evangelical. I listen to a little bit of worship songs. And, you know, I've got some Christian friends, those kinds of things. But your time in erodes your awareness of the fact that you're slipping and you don't have connection with people and you're not really walking with Jesus. You're living off of yesteryear's passionate events. And maybe you're like Noah, where you had this amazing event in your life, and now here you are, and you're just like, you know what, I'm just going to coast here for a while. I don't know what Noah was thinking. It doesn't really say. I, I, we may be reading into the text. I'm not sure, but it sure seems like Noah jacked up life. Because he didn't have this resistance. He didn't have this, this passion for being with God. And he was living off of last year's more than the last several hundred years, passionate event that he had. And so, time in erodes his cares of this, his cares of, of sin, and he just comes to a point where he may not say this outright, and you may not say this outright, and I, I don't think I ever say this outright, but I just don't care. I just don't care. It's, it's just been a part of my life. It's just, it's, just been, it's just been in there. It's, I, just, I, I just don't care about, you know. Me, me and the wife aren't doing so well, and so I'll entertain a conversation with, with another woman because, you know, I, I really do like to have a conversation with, with women, but we're just, my wife and I are fighting all the time, and so I'll just, I'll just have that conversation with this, this other woman who's not my wife. And the same thing happens in the other direction. My husband's such a jerk. He's just working all the time. He just never, he's just, just never around. And so I'm, I'm not really, I'm not really having an affair. I'm just, I'm just having a conversation. Well, time in erodes your awareness of, and it, it erodes your cares of. And and you let slip what media you intake, and before you know it, you're engaged in pornography. And you let slip your use of alcohol, and pretty soon you're numbing your pain with alcohol. And you let slip. Uh, your time with the Lord, and pretty soon you begin to have a hard heart, and, and you let slip your time with God's people, and pretty soon you attend church like twice a year, uh, Christmas and Easter, if that, 
And then somebody comes and asks you and says, what church, you know, what, what church do you attend? You say, I, I attend Outward. But if you were to go to Outward and you say, hey, I, 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 attend, I, I, I attend here, we'd all be like, who? What? what? Yeah, are, are you serious? Like, you actually said that? Like, what's, what's going on? Look, look at what Hebrews chapter 11, verse 7 said. No, wrong verse. Chapter 3, verse 12 says. Hebrews chapter 3, verse 12. It says, take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. Now, do you see what that says? It says, it says, I want you, you Christians, you people, you believers, to understand something, that it is completely possible that you would have an, not just an unbelieving heart, but an evil unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living of God the the living God see we don't realize it we keep taking steps away from the living God we keep walking we keep walking we keep walking and the truth is is that we are continually and regularly walking away from him and we say you know it's not evil but what this author says is he's saying no this is evil This is what's leading you away. It's a sinful, unbelieving heart that you have to see is always a propensity. Sin is always persistent. It's always pervasive. It is there. I am this close away or this close to a sinful and unbelieving heart. I am always looking at my heart saying, God, do I believe in you? Why do I believe in you? What is drawing me closer to you? Do, do I have faith in you? Am I walking with you? Have you asked yourself that question? Or do you just show up to church occasionally? Or do you just show up, show up to church or show up to your community group without ever really telling anybody what's really going on? Without re- really identifying what's going on in your heart? That the truth is, is that your heart, call it what it is, 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 is turning evil. Like there's, there's an unbelieving heart there. He then goes on to say in verse 13, he says, Hebrews chapter 3, verse 13, but exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Look at this. What's, what's the way forward here? It's that we live in community, that you live in proximity to me, that you are known and that you know other people, that I am known and that I know other people, and that we live in proximity, and we're encouraging one another, like real stuff is coming up about our lives where we can begin to talk about and we can say, hey, I feel like I've got a sinful, unbelieving heart because I feel like doing this. I don't feel like being a part of that. I don't want to walk in this way. And so we exhort one another. You can't do that by yourself. You can't do that on your own. That's absurd. It's completely absurd. You have to be involved with God's people. He says that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of of sin. He's saying as long as it's called today, go right now. Be a part of it now. 
And then he says this, For we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. That's a comfort and a caution. The comfort is this, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. I take that to mean this. When someone truly becomes a believer, they hold that confidence in Christ. That he is the one who saved them and that he goes on saving them. And their confidence is continually in him to the very end. The caution is this. If. If. And by that, I believe the author means this. And we could show this to you over and over again. Sinful, unbelieving hearts. While can be rectified, reaffirming our faith in Christ. It, it doesn't even mean that we've lost our salvation, but what it may mean is that we never walked with him in the first place. Our task as believers oftentimes is to test ourselves over and over again. Is my faith truly in Christ? Or is my faith was it just started through some crazy emotional experience that happened early on? Some of you came to faith and you got involved in essentially an affinity group. A group of people that like to be moral and they like to listen to cool music, if you can call it that. And they, they like to hang out to one another. You got involved not because of Christ. You affirmed Christ, but the, the draw that you had towards this God was not the God of these people, but just these people. And while that's good, and that might have been the first step, what, what needs to happen is this, is that that if needs to be affirmed, and we need to say, indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end, and our original confidence is in Jesus Christ alone. It has to be in Jesus Christ alone. Because of this, like when, when Noah totally jacks things up, Noah wasn't just let go, and, and God wasn't like, ha, huh, Noah, you are such a screw-up. No, God knew from the very beginning what was going to happen. God knows the intentions of man's heart from his youth. God knows the sin that you're in right now. God knows what you did. God knows where you've been. God knows what's taking place in your life. And do you know what he did about that? He didn't come down and, he, and scold you. What he came down and did, he came down and he died for you on the cross. He comes down and he dies on the cross for you. So that you can look to him and you can say, I see the pervasiveness of sin. I see the persistence of sin in my life, which only shows me my need for Jesus over and over and over again. And do you know what takes place in that? First of all, we're saved by the grace, mercy, and power of God. It's not because you did what was right. It's not because you were just a better looking person. Oh, you didn't jack up, jack things up the way that Noah did or the way that David did or something like that. No, it's a recognition it's the same recognition that Noah has. Noah continued to walk by faith. 
His faith was always in God in spite of his sin. He continued to come back to God. And won't you continue to come back to God? See, there's a caution, which is watch out. Watch out for your life. It's going to go better for you if you're not walking in that sin. But more importantly, when we do sin, when we do sin, it says in 1 John, 1 John 1, 1 John uh, 2, verse 1, he says, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. Jesus Christ, the righteous. Past faithfulness is not a prediction of future obedience. Only faith in Christ will do. Your past faithfulness is nothing. Jesus forever faithfulness to you through the cross by saving you. Jesus in incredible grace and mercy, even in the midst of your sin, is what matters, my friends. And it is in and through that that we're able to see our lives. We're, be able, to, we're able to walk with Jesus and with God's people, watching our lives as we're growing closer to him. I hope that you take that to heart this morning. My wife keeps saying to me, she read something in her uh, study Bible, which was saying, with abundance, there is a caution. With abundance comes a caution. And guys, you gotta be honest. You guys look pretty good. I mean, I, I know, but we, we, we look pretty well fed, some of us more than others, but, uh, <laughs> but uh, we look, I'm talking about myself here, okay? It's summer comes and I'll do yard work and it'll be fine, but uh, we're pretty well fed. You may not feel like this yet. Maybe you're just starting out your life or whatever. But I got to tell you that our church has been through some crazy times where God has been so passionate. I, as a pastor, do not want to be laying drunk and uncovered in a tent. And I don't think you want that for your life either. What if we shift gears and we say, what if we look more deeply into Jesus? What if we concentrate on who he is and what he's done for us so that our passion doesn't leave us from these intense moments, but it's just beginning in our lives? I implore you, because I'm imploring myself, to look fervently into Christ. And let's, let's look at the next 20 years that we have ahead of us. What's God going to do in Outward Church? What's God going to do in your life? How are we going to watch each other as we go in love and in truth. Let's pray. So Lord Jesus, this morning, we ask that you would not just convict us of sin, but Lord, we ask that you would convict us of our propensity towards a particular sin, that you'd convict us of 
our lack of awareness, that you'd convict us of our, our lack of caring. Lord, that you, that you would instill in us a deep passion to walk with you even when times are good, even when things just don't seem that intense. But Lord, that you would give us a desire to walk with you even in the good times. So Lord, would you, would you awaken us to this reality? Would you cause us to, to be closer to you? Lord, would you stir in us a newfound passion to walk with you even when things are good, when things are okay? And I know that it's not good with everybody in this room. Some are just starting their walk with you. Some are going through horrible situations and they're in the midst of it and they can't imagine getting to the other side and just being like, I don't trust God anymore or something like that. So Lord, we're just thankful for that. We're thankful for the, the difficulty. We're sad about the devastation, but we're so thankful that you're growing these people. But Lord, help us to continue to look to you and look for you in our lives. Lord, may we depend on you through your gospel. May we understand that we only have relationship with you because of what you've done for us on the cross. May we walk with you for a lifetime. Lord, we ask for this in your name. We pray, amen.